Tonight, uh, we're going to step away a little bit from, uh, from the next couple of uh, Wednesdays uh, from Ezekiel. We are going to finish Ezekiel in, in, in January, uh, to the best of my knowledge and ability. We'll finish Ezekiel in January. But uh, I'd like to have you turn to a few places. Uh, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 9. So uh, I'd like to have you turn to Daniel 9. I've been mentioning over the last few weeks that we've been, actually the last couple of months since we've been in, uh, since we started uh, Ezekiel 40, now we're, we're finished up with 43. When we get back to Ezekiel, we'll be in 44 through 48, five, the last five chapters. But uh, back when we started in chapter 40, I, I was mentioning that uh, there was something I wanted to share with you all about the temple, not the temple that we've been studying in Ezekiel, the last nine chapters, but the temple that is going to be built during the time of the tribulation period. And uh, it has to be a, a very unique a temple. It has to be a very unique situation to bring it about. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Then I want to deal with the issues of where that temple is going to be built. And you might say, well, we all know where it's going to be built. It's going to be built on the Temple Mount. Well, that's possible. I'm not saying that it isn't. But I am considering some other things, some other alternative views. Uh, and again, not to say that uh, these are right or wrong. Certainly, for one thing for sure, the temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. There's no doubt about that. But uh, whether it's the Temple Mount or not, uh, that's what we're going to investigate. We're going to take two weeks to investigate that. So put on your best uh, uh, cloaks and no daggers, but, you know, put, put your cloaks on, you know, kind of like uh, Columbo. I bet you most of you don't even know who Columbo is. Who, who remembers who Columbo is? Yeah, he was a detective, so he's where, you know, one of those big trench coats, you know. That, let's, and we're going to get our, you know, our magnifying glass like Sherlock Holmes or uh, whatever. We're, we're going to do some investigating here, okay? So let's turn to Daniel chapter 9 first, and let's first look at verses 24 through 27. And we're going to lay just a kind of a scriptural foundation for the fact that the temples now that we're going to be dealing with in these next three uh, uh, scripture passages as we begin our study are actually pointing to a temple on the earth before the millennial temple which we've been talking about in Ezekiel. This is going to be a temple during the time of the tribulation period and hence the title the tribulation temple. Seventy weeks Daniel is receiving this as a prophecy. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, which means that there are seven years that Israel still needs to go through a, a particular discipline that they were cut off from after they had been scattered uh, for the last couple of thousand years. 
Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the timing of that in just a minute. So 70 weeks, which was the complete time that they were supposed to be judged, 70 weeks are determined. And that is 70 weeks of years, 490 years, if you'll remember that. And to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So if you are a Jewish person and you're reading Daniel's prophecy, if your heart is open and your mind is open and your spirit is open to the things of God, you're going to say, the Lord has something good after all these years that we spent all this time in rebellion and in uh, uh, disobedience to the Lord. He said he's going to bring all of that to an end. He's going to finish the transgression, finish and reconcile the iniquity, and then bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, which is Messiah, Jesus. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks, which is seven times seven, 49, and three score and two weeks. That's altogether uh, the 69 weeks of years, 493 years. I just, pardon me for the pauses, those are that my computer is a little slow up here, uh, my calculator, so getting it. So 69 weeks of years is 483 uh, weeks of years. The street shall be built again, the walls even in troublous times. This has happened already. This is a, a, a prophecy that has been fulfilled in that uh, Israel was brought out of captivity. They went back into the land. They uh, became a, a nation somewhat again, and then of course uh, it says in verse 26, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So what it's saying is after all of that preparation time and getting them into this situation, uh, the Messiah would be cut off. That, that is of course speaking of the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And notice that he did not do it for himself, but not for himself and the people of the prince. Now, you have to understand that certain things are being given to Daniel that seem to span a, a, a long period of time, and we see it kind of put together in, in, uh, in, in words, but we're dealing with a, a, a big separation of time when you get to the next phrase. He says, And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, if it was immediate, we would say it's the Romans that came in because they were the the people of a certain king, of course, uh, a Caesar, and they came and destroyed the city and the sanctuary. But that's not really the reference here. The Romans were really just a type of what was yet to come. So the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the sanctuary, of course, being the temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. That should give us an idea that we're, de we're dealing with a, a war that's yet to come. We want to call it Armageddon. We can talk about that at another time. But nonetheless, it says, there, the end shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Because that war, by the way, hasn't happened. And then it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That is the prince of the people. Let me just say outright that when you do a very clear study of this, you realize that the prince of the people is actually the Antichrist that is yet to come. 
So he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That covenant is with the nation of Israel for seven years. Those are the same seven years that Israel has to go through their captivity during the time of the tribulation to finish the whole of the, of the 490 years, which they haven't yet finished, of their, of their um, uh, uh, discipline. And then it says that in the midst of the week, in the very middle, and the midst means right at the middle, three and a half years, right in between those seven weeks of years, which is seven years, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. So right there, we need to understand that obviously there was a temple that was going to be built because the, the Jews will not sacrifice and offer offerings unto the Lord without a temple and without a priesthood. So it's going to cease, which means they obviously are going to be given a temple and a time to do what they've been praying to do for thousands of years. And that is to be back in the land, back in Jerusalem, back offering just as God had commanded them to do. And then it says, and for the overspreading of abomination. So in the midst of the week he shall cause, that is the Antichrist shall cause the sacrifice of oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. So he goes into, which, which means the abomination of desolation Jesus talked about being the fact that Antichrist will go three and a half years into the temple. He will declare himself as God. And we'll see that in just a moment. And of course, desecrate the temple. And then psh, the last three and a half years is what's called the Great Tribulation. And then all hell will in fact break loose on the earth. Uh, using the word hell as certainly a biblical <laughs> kind of term. But understand what it means. For the overspreading of abominations until he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, the complete fulfillment of all of this stuff, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. To make a, an even clearer view of what's happening here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is our next passage, verses 3 and 4 says this. And this is now the Apostle Paul in the New Testament telling us about the same exact event, situation. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. An apostasy, an apostasia, because that's the word in, in the Greek. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, notice, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God. There again is the reference to a temple. And he will sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Well, showing himself to say that, you know, he's God. Now, in Revelation chapter 11, which is a chapter that deals with the two witnesses, uh, notice that it says in verses 1 and 2, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. Now, this is John the Apostle talking about this vision God is giving him of what's taking place at that time. There was a given me a, a, a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. What does that remind you of? Those of you that have been studying Ezekiel with us. Ezekiel, right? Reminds us of Ezekiel, who was told, well, you know, an angel came and had a rod to measure the millennial temple. Now John is given something to, uh, given a reed like unto a rod, and he's told to measure the temple of God. Now we're not given any specifics about the measurements as Ezekiel was given. But nonetheless, it says, and he measured the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. 
but the court which is without the temple leave out, which means the court that is outside of the temple. Don't measure it, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall tread underfoot forty and two months. And that coincides with all of those, with, with that seven-year period. And in this particular case, 42 months being the three and a half years. So in our studies of Ezekiel chapter uh, chapters 40 through 48, we focused our attention on the vision given to the prophet by the Lord of the Messianic temple that will stand when Jesus rules and reigns from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's what we all are anticipating, both Jew and Gentile. Well, I say Jew and, and Christian. Jew and believer in, in Jesus Christ. We're anticipating the Messianic temple. But right now, what you hear in Israel by many of the Orthodox Jews is Messiah come now, Messiah come now. So they want Messiah to come. But they also want to build a temple so that when Messiah comes, they'll have a temple ready for Messiah. Here's the problem. What's going to happen in a very short amount of time is that there is somebody coming. They're going to consider him somewhat of a Messiah. And they're going to build a temple. And that is the temple that is going to be desecrated with the abomination that makes desolate. Because it's not going to be the true Messiah. It's going to be the Antichrist himself. But the messianic temple that we've been studying in Ezekiel, that is the one that comes after all of that on a different ge a geographical plane and, and topographical plane. Jesus is going to change everything. That's what we've been talking about. That you know, The topography is going to change. The size of the hill is going to change so that he can place his temple mount where all nations shall come to worship him for a thousand years. So that's, that's what we've been studying. So before that temple is realized at the second coming of Christ, there's a temple that is referred to in Scripture, where I've been talking about already, which these texts we've just read allude to, that has been the dream and desire so longed for by the Jewish people for thousands of years. The Scriptures prophetically make it clear that such a temple will be rebuilt. It will be rebuilt. There is no doubt that the very existence of the Jewish state in Eretz Israel, which means the land of Israel today, not to mention the existence and survival of the Jewish people at all, is strong confirmation that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is certainly fulfilling his promises to restore not only the nation to its land, but to reestablish his people spiritually. Remember, he is going to restore them. He's going to restore Israel, but he's restoring the people in their worship, in their service, and in their devotion once again toward him, toward their God, and toward their Savior. Now, to the Jews, their desire is to rebuild what they consider to be the third temple, to succeed Solomon's and Herod's temples. But let me point out here that there are those who believe that the second temple was actually Zerubbabel's temple, something that you read about in the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel's temple, rebuilt with the same stones as Solomon's temple, consecrated in 516 B.C. 
if you do the math, remember when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed? 586. 516, how many years is that? 70 years. That was the promise given in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. 20, so, you know, 70 years they'd be in that captivity in Babylon. So they consecrated it, the, you know, the, the place where the temple had stood. They consecrated it in 516 B.C., which means that now they set it apart to rebuild it seven years after the destruction by the Babylonians, which was later to be reconstructed, by the way, and redesigned by Herod, begun in the years 20 or 19 B.C., about 18 years after Herod began his reign. So about 20 or 19 B.C., uh, 20 years before Jesus is born, that the temple was begun, the, the Herod's temple, which some call the second temple, and others call just the, the, the re renovation of the second temple, which was Zerubbabel's. So one way or another, what the Jews are seeking to do is to build the third temple. So the presumption, the presumption of building or rebuilding this third temple on what is today known as the Temple Mount, which is a nearly 36-acre uh, area, the traditional spot where it is believed that the two previous temples stood, this presumption is, strong, is based, uh, or is believed that the two previous temples stood, is strongly based on unchallenged tradition. It is based on unchallenged tradition, and I want to explain that. Uh, the group that, that seems to have the loudest voice today in desiring the temple is a, is a group, an organization called the Temple Mount Faithful. The Temple Mount Faithful. You can look them up in the, in the internet. But it's a powerful group of Orthodox Jews who state as their long-term objectives as, and listen carefully, I'm going to just give you three of them. Uh, their first long-term objective is liberating the Temple Mount from Arab or Muslim occupation. And it's a very long statement, so I just took the first statement there. <laughs> liberating the Temple Mount from Arab occupation or Muslim occupation. The second long-term objective is consecrating the Temple Mount to the name of God. And usually when you see the name of God written by Orthodox Jews or the word God is capital G, a hyphen, and a little d. They, they, can't, they, don't, they, they feel they're unworthy to spell it out completely, like G-O-D. So they just have the G uh, hyphen D. Uh, so they're consecrating the Temple Mount to the name of God so that it can become the moral and spiritual center of Israel, of the Jewish people, and of the entire world, according to the words of all the Hebrew prophets. The third long-term objective of the Temple Mount faithful is rebuilding the third temple in accordance with the words of all the Hebrew prophets. I mean, these are just some of their long-term goals. Now, the Temple Mount Institute, if you've ever been with us to Israel, some of you have been to the Temple Mount Institute with us. It's run and operated by the Temple Mount faithful, and it's usually one of our stops in the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, they've, they've actually uh, improved um, over the years. You know, you, we used to sit and somebody would talk to us and show us, you know, almost, it was almost like Sunday school. You know, we would get, uh, uh, you know, over the felt boards, you know, whatever and, and, and whatnot. And at that time, they were starting to make the, uh, the furnishings of the temple and the tools and the implements 
that are used uh, in, uh, in the temple services and the temple sacrifices. And we'd see a couple of things. Even the trumpets would be made and the, uh, you know, the, the, the little uh, uh, buckets that they would use you know, to, to get the ashes and dig them out and whatnot. Right. Little by little, every year, every time we went back, there was something new about it. Now it's kind of high tech. And you get there and they show you videos. You know, they got, they got this really super video about you know, these artists rendering and conceptions of, uh, of, of their Long Fort Temple. I mean, it, you know, if they built the way that they have it in the, in, man, it would be, I mean, we're talking, man, high tech stuff, you know. Uh, that, so that's how they want to build a new temple, right? So these are the things we get to see when we're there. The furnishings, the implements, now they have everything made already. The priest's robes are all made. Uh, all of the, uh, the altar uh, equipment has already been made. We, we got a chance to see that the last time we were there. Uh, the uh, clothing, the equipment, it's, it's all prepared and made for the express purpose of commencing animal sacrifices and offering. It is a truly amazing experience, but sometimes you have to realize uh, some of the things that they, some of their ideas are just a little bit off the wall, really. Is. But it's a great thing to go see. So afterwards, we always say, be careful about what we just heard, okay? Because <laughs> some of it is just, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way they interpret Scripture right now. And, and don't forget, of course, that they're waiting for Messiah to come. They want Messiah to come. They don't know that their Messiah is Jesus and that he already came. But the Scripture tells us that. But, you know, we pray for them in any event. So it's important to point out that much of the work of the Temple Mount faithful has uh, to do has uh, to a great degree it, it's provoked the Arabs actually, um, and um, I don't think I mentioned uh, no I didn't. Um, they have a leader of their organization called his name is Dr. Gershon Salomon, and uh, uh, he's he's quite well known in Israel. Most mostly you know kind of have a uh, has a, um, uh, he's not so much famous as he is a little bit infamous, you know, with both, for, well, first of all with the Arabs, but, uh, but also with many of the Jews as well. Uh, because he tried one time to drive a, uh, to drive a, a, a kind of a, a foundation stone up into the Temple Mount. And of course the Temple Mount is, is, is uh, overseen by, by the Arabs. And, and so it, it almost caused, a, a, the, you know, World War III at that time. So there, there's all kinds of things that, uh, that he's done. And, and, but he, but he, has, he has this heart, you know, that they, they are ready to build a temple now. So anyway, it's, it's important to note that uh, much of the work has provoked the Arabs along with any number of, uh, many number of, uh, or any number of Jews who still see them somewhat as insiders and troublemakers. But, uh, but their, their temple institute uh, continues on and... Uh, as I said, if we go, if the Lord gives us an opportunity to go again, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go back there. Because it's important to see uh, that that heart really burns for the things of God, even though they have yet to see their Messiah and to know who he is. But still, they're passionate for what they believe to be the will of God and his prophetic word. Let me, let me give you a, a Jewish expression that uh, captures that passion. And to be honest with you, I wish we had this kind of passion as well in the church for Jesus Christ. But this comes from the Midrash Tanchuma Kedoshim. And it says, as the navel, that's, that's of course the belly button, just so you'll know. 
I'm not talking about, you know, the U.S. Navy. So. As the navel is set in the center of the human body, so is the land of Israel, the navel of the world. Situated in the center of the world and Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary and the ark in the center of the holy place and the foundation stone before the holy place because from it the world was founded. That, that, that is the kind of passion they have for Jerusalem, for the land of Israel, for the temple, for the sanctuary. And that's, that's, kinda, that's, that's a heavy thought. The real challenge that we want to deal with this evening is the challenging of the tradition that the temple ever actually stood on what is known today as the Temple Mount. And I want to say, as I said earlier, that, uh, that I'm not siding with anyone or any group that is considered an, alternate, or an alternative site, uh, at least not yet. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're still investigating it. There's still things yet to happen. But it's worth examining. I, th I really think it's worth examining as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching and things in the Middle East, especially things in Israel heating up. And they are heating up and much fulfilling prophecy taking place practically on a daily basis that will certainly affect the timing of the rebuilt temple, which is, by the way, as I said, under Arab Muslim control. So I think it would be good for us to examine the history right now of the temples. A very, very quick history, not a, not a long history. But I think it's important for us to understand the importance of the temples that have been built and the temple that is going to be built during the time of the tribulation period. So let's consider a little bit of this history. In 957 BC, so almost a thousand years before the birth of Christ, in 957 BC, the first temple was built by Solomon, son of David, for worship, it was built for sacrifice, and to house the Ark of the Covenant. The model for it, of course, at first was the tabernacle that was given to Moses in the wilderness. But then as the nation of Israel was now in the land and a house was to be built for the Lord, this would be the pattern. It would have different uh, dimensions, a little bit larger, a little bit more permanent. We know from our study of Ezekiel that the first temple stood until 586 BC when the Babylonians destroyed it. And then, as I said earlier, in 516, 515 BC, Zerubbabel and the exiles rebuilt the temple on top of the demolished first temple. So you can read about that in the book of Ezra. And it wasn't built immediately. It took about 20 years for it to... I mean, we're talking about them having, you know, stones were everywhere. The temple was, was just... And see, this is the other thing about where it was there was really no way to know that there was a certain particular place that, uh, except, except for what the scripture has to say. And that's what we're going to examine here in just a little bit. Uh, but uh, so they, they had just assumed that on this particular plateau uh, of, of this particular hill that uh, everything was, was there and scattered and they rebuilt it on the same spot by putting the stones upon it. But it, it took a long time. It, it was 
uh, and it wasn't, it was kind of crudely done because if you read the book of Haggai, you realize that, um, you know, there were, there were people that uh, really didn't like the, uh, the re re renovated temple because all it was was stone upon stone and God got on them because they were building houses better for themselves than the house that was supposed to be built for them or for him. So anyway, by 20 uh, BC or 19 BC, as I said earlier, the second temple underwent Herod's renovation and his expansion because Herod was one that just loved to build. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was crazy builder. Uh, I mean, he had the, the most ornate uh, decorations and, uh, you know, uh, things that you could add on to this build, a lot of gold and, uh, you know, the marble and getting it from all over the place. So he rebuilt this, this massive and beautiful structure. And this rather magnificently built temple would remain until its destruction by the Romans in 70 AD. That was also the temple that Jesus saw. Today, the Jews anticipate building the third temple, as already stated. Now, also, tradition dictates that the temple needs to be rebuilt on the same spot that Solomon's and Herod's temples stood. And as I am going to continue to say, what is now called by its Arab Muslim occupiers, because they're occupying the Temple Mount today. It's called Haram al-Sharif. Haram al-Sharif means the noble enclosure. The noble enclosure. Or what we know as the Dome of the Rock. The Golden Dome. You've all seen pictures of the old city of Jerusalem. When you drive into Jerusalem, the first thing, you know, the, our tour guys and our bus drivers, they like to make it a real dramatic entrance, you know. They put some music on, and this guy's singing about Jerusalem, and, and it's touching. I'm not saying it isn't, but I've, I've done it many times, so it's like, you know, the, every time, the only thing I'm looking forward to see is the wall, and, and, and the wall of the old city, you know. Because if you, if you think about it, when you finally get out of this tunnel, because uh, you're, you're driving up into Jerusalem, and by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem from any angle that you come from or from any direction. But as we're coming up from the south and we're coming up into Jerusalem, we get out of this tunnel and all of a sudden we look to our left and there's the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. Modern Jerusalem's all around it, of course, but the old city of Jerusalem. But the first thing you see, and if you come at a certain time and the sun is shining, I mean, it is just reflecting off of this gold dome. And I'd like to say, oh, that's a beautiful sight. But that dome is the Dome of the Rock, which is actually called the Mosque of Omar. And then there's another building behind it or, or beside it, close, close by it, which is called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so what does that tell you? It's, it's really hard to say, wow, you know, what a sight. I mean, because it, it, immediately you get struck with the very fact that that temple mount where those two buildings are is being occupied by the enemies of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The enemies of the Jewish people and the enemies of the believers in Jesus Christ. Just think about that for just a moment. What we do know from history is that this location, at this very location, 
There was a lot of blood that has been shed as Muslims and Christians all fighting in the names of their respective God, little g or God, big G. As the mountain was captured and recaptured numerous times, blood shed, if I may say profusely, from the standpoint of, of nations trying to claim this in the name of, of Christ. Some, the Crusaders. And of course, there were the Muslims who thought to take this whole area for Allah under their leadership from the Prophet Muhammad. And the fact of the matter is, when you think about it all, the bitternesses still exist. There, there really isn't a peace. There, there's a, a sort of peace. God has established that peace. When you go to Israel, you realize that the nation of Israel is, is really uh, been given a, a, a blessing by God to establish a democracy as the only democracy in the whole area for the purpose of letting everybody know, listen, you can be an Arab and be a citizen of Israel. You can be an Arab, a citizen of Israel, and serve in the Knesset, which is the parliament of Israel. And there are those that do. And then there are other groups. They, they don't restrict everybody to being a Jewish. There are the Druze who are, who are represented. That's a, a, a different sect of people. And this is the kind of thing that we see happening all the time when we go is that the, the people of Israel really are seeking peace. They really do. I'm not saying that just because we support Israel, but I'm saying that because that's the truth. But their enemies do not. And all they care about is destroying Israel. When it comes right down to it, the leadership of, of, of the Muslim countries, from the standpoint of their imams and their, their, their uh, uh, Muslim leadership, from the, from the religious standpoint. Because you have to understand, Islam is not just, just a religion, it, it's, it's, it's a government. It's a political government. And, and you know, their, their whole desire is to rule the world. And, but they're going to start there because their biggest enemies is Israel. So this is how the hate has, has kind of been the, you know, the undergirding of all of these, these conflicts. And they don't just go back 1,000 years or 2,000 years. We're, we're going back a long way. And we can go back a long way in the scriptures to know that that tension started way before. Tension started in the very womb of, of Jacob's mother. And, and there where she had twins, you know, Jacob and Esau. That was tremendous uh, conflict. 
all to the point that if, you, if you've been with it as any, any amount of time in studying the Old Testament and studying the book of Genesis and, or studying some of the prophecies that we've been studying in Ezekiel and Daniel and, and some of the minor prophets, there, I mean, there are whole chapters devoted to God judging Edom, which are the people of Esau, because of that conflict. And then, this, then came uh, Ishmael, and the conflict with, with, uh, with Isaac, and Ishmael becoming the, the, you know, pretty much the, uh, the beginnings of, of the Arab nations. So I mean, we're just we're talking about the fact that it goes back a whole long way. So let's consider, if you will, what the Lord Jesus saw and what he said about the temple, because this is pretty significant to where we're going with all of this as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. And before Jesus gets into talking about what's going to be happening in the end, in the last days, in the latter days, the subject actually comes up because of what the disciples wanted to show Jesus at the temple. And in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. This would be Herod's temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. We, we assume that they're showing Jesus this temple because they wanted to say to him, Look, what a magnificent temple this is. The size of this temple, the beauty of this temple, and all of these things. In a, in a sense, I mean, a lot of people do that. We do that. You know, we want to show, hey, we want to show you something. You know, we want to kind of uh, show off something. And we kind of get that idea of that they're really trying to show him off, show the temple off to him in, in verse 2 when he said, because it, Jesus said unto them, see, you not all these things. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, every stone that is upon another will not be on top of that other stone after the destruction. And he's talking directly about the temple. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He is talking about the temple. That would mean the surroundings of the temple. The other buildings considered part of the temple, uh, what we would say the temple mount, as it were, every stone would be laid aside. And one of the arguments used by the Jewish people that the temple mount is the precise place where the temple stood fo uh, focuses on what we call the western wall. In, in Hebrew, it's the kotel or what is sometimes known as the Wailing Wall. You've all seen pictures of the Wailing Wall. In fact, just recently when, past, uh, when, uh, when uh, President Trump um, made that uh, uh, statement and, and, and that uh, Jerusalem was, was, the, was the capital of, of, of Israel, uh, 
the Jewish people were so excited, they actually put on, on the wall itself the Israeli flag and the U.S. flag and gave thanks to President Trump for doing that. There was on the Wailing, well, the Wailing Wall, by the way, the Wailing Wall, the, the phrase, you don't, wanna, you don't wanna say that to Jewish people because it's, it's kind of a derogatory. Uh, it's really called the Western Wall because it was the Western Wall. Now, by the way, if you remember something about our study of the, of the Millennial Temple, the, the temple proper, the, the sanctuary proper of the Millennial Temple, the Solomon's Temple, uh, Herod's Temple, always was the closest to the Western Wall. Remember that open area in front. From the Eastern Gate to that Western Wall, it was more open. The, the temple would be moved closer to the Western Wall. So here is this wall called the Western Wall where the Jews actually consider it to be the most sacred place that they have right now because they're not allowed on the Temple Mount. They can only go in groups of 15, I think, today it is. I mean, it changes all the time. The, the Arabs change it all the time. And uh, in fact, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll tell you, no, no we want to sometimes go up there. We've been up to the Temple Mount before. And then there's years where we go and it's like, no, I'm sorry, they've, they've had some kind of conflict, so they're not going to let anybody go up. So it's that way all the time. You never know. But the Jews can't go up there to worship. They can't do any praying up there. They can't do it. I mean, these are the rules of the occupiers. And they truly are occupiers of the Temple Mount. That is the Arab Muslims. So the Jews who argue that the Temple Mount is a precise place also provides for them the opportunity to argue that Jesus was completely inaccurate and therefore not worthy of being their Messiah in his statement when he says, not one stone will be upon another. Well, look, here's the Western Wall, the retaining wall. It's still up. Jesus must not be a good prophet. You understand now? Okay. That's what they say. The Western Wall is a portion of a retaining wall that was built by Herod, the Western portion being what the Jews consider to be the closest to the temple, making it their most sacred site. And if you want to know something, they even consider a, a, a place underneath, because we get to go down below the temple wall, or I should say the Western Wall, there's a place where people are praying every day, because they, they feel that at that point is where they're the closest to where the sanctuary itself was. And usually there's a, a lady there. I mean, yeah, it's usually ladies, and they're there like 24 hours a day. They just change. Well, we never go at, you know, at midnight or anything like that, because, you know. But anyway, somebody's there all the time. So the question is, was Jesus inaccurate then? Because he said every stone would not be upon another. Well, first of all, let's consider the words of certain historians who recorded many of those events firsthand. Take, for example, Josephus. Some of you are familiar with Flavius Josephus. He wrote a lot of the histories of, of, uh, of, of Israel and a lot of the wars and the, the, the conflicts. Well, he also wrote the history of, uh, of, of Israel during the time of Jesus. Notice, if you will, what uh, I'm just going to read it to you. It, it says, uh, uh, 
it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground. That is, and he's talking about what was considered where the temple was in Jerusalem. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. Now that is talking about pretty much all of Jerusalem. This is after the destruction by the Romans. All of Jerusalem and where the temple stood. Later, in the third century, the third century historian Eusebius wrote this. He said, the hill called Zion and Jerusalem, the buildings there, that is to say the temple, has been utterly removed or shaken. Utterly removed or shaken. Everything is laid waste. Not one stone is upon another. But what I found to be the most fascinating thing are the words of the Je Jewish military commander of the rebels who fled to Masada. And that is Eliezer ben Yair. Eliezer ben Yair. He was the commander of the rebels that fled up to Masada. He said this, it, speaking of Jerusalem, it is now demolished to the very foundations and has nothing left but that monument of it preserved. I mean the camp of those that has destroyed it. Speaking of the Romans. I mean the camp of those Romans that has destroyed it, which still dwells upon its ruins. Now stop and think what he just said. Everything is demolished and the only thing preserved is the camp of the Romans. Now, what was he referring to? He was referring to the Roman camp called the Antonia Garrison Fort or Antonia Fortress as most of us know it, which could only mean that the Temple Mount survived. Primarily because it was the camp of the 10th Legion of Rome. Yet, he said that the temple and its foundations were gone and uprooted. And if that's the case, it was fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that not one stone was upon another. The camp was still there which means that the wall then that's still standing was part of not so much the temple, but of the Roman fort. Now, would that make the current temple mount, in fact, the whole Roman fortress? Would it be the whole Roman fortress? Now, what did we say the size was? 36 acres, between 35, 36 acres. A rectangular shape, oh, kind of, not exactly perfectly rectangle, but kind of a rectangular shape. So I'm just saying it's something to think about, something here to think about. Just for a moment, consider that the Temple Mount has the same dimensions as many other Roman fortresses. 
including one of the fortresses that was built below Masada as the Romans awaited their siege. Uh, I don't have the pictures here today, but I will have them up for next week so you can see the comparisons. Because they, they compare nearly by the foot and by the acreage to each other. The dimensions would each fit one on top of the other. So we'll, we'll look at that next time. But tradition places the Antonia Fortress, or what is also called the Tower of Antonia, at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Now I said tradition, remember, tradition places the Antonia Fortress at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. So if you're facing from the Mount of Olives, if you're facing the Eastern Gate, then to your right, you would look up there and you would say, well, that has to be the Antonia Fortress up in the northwest corner. If you look to the south, you actually see the southern steps going into the, into the gate that would be considered the, the gate into the Temple Mount area. So if you take the traditional measurements then and the dimensions, three acres, by the way, that's what's been given to the Antonia Fortress. Three acres, 40, 490 feet by 260 feet. Three acres was supposed to house the entire Roman legion, 6,000 soldiers. Not to mention 4,000 support personnel. There were 10,000 people. And they had five acres of land, I mean, they had three acres of land for 10,000 people. Now, let me just give you some perspective. This, this, pass, this, this particular land for the church is on five acres, just barely five acres, okay? Can you see 10,000 people on these five acres? That, that would, yeah, it's, it's possible, of course, but it would be a really close fit. I mean, you know, wouldn't be much room to go in any direction. So can you imagine three acres? If, 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 we, are, if we are just giving you know, the Antonia Tower that we say is at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, you know, uh, to 10,000 Romans. Be because there's no indication that they lived anyplace else. That's the point. Then we, th there's one major thought to consider. That the Roman commanders themselves who were charged with keeping the peace among the people in Jerusalem would have clearly wanted to occupy the high ground. They would not have wanted it any other way. The high ground is the Temple Mount. Just something to consider. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just think about this. And once again, we turn to Josephus' historic account. And he says, and I quote, now as to the Tower of Antonia, it might seem to be composed of several cities. Huh. For if we go up to this tower of Antonia, we gain the city, since we shall then be upon the top of the hill. And the only place that would seem on top of a hill able to house 10,000 people is the 36-acre Temple Mount. But now, what does the scripture say that may challenge the traditional thought and location of the Temple Mount or in Temple location? 
What links do the scriptures contain to provide a possible alternative? But let, again, let's just consider this as links and connectors. What is connecting our thought process in, in understanding this? Remember, now, I remember why I'm telling you this. I'm not trying to change anybody's ideas of this because I, I haven't changed mine yet. I'm just trying to figure these things out. But I want to use scripture to understand some things. And the fact of the matter is, if Jesus is coming soon, then what is going to cause a temple to be built almost immediately? The temple does, by the way, the temple does not have to be built before the rapture of the church. Let me just say that. The temple does not have to be built before the rapture of the church, but it does have to be built at such a time where it can be constructed for the sake of, or for the purpose of getting to that middle part of the three and a half years because a covenant would have been made to say, okay, now we have a covenant with Israel. You want peace? Good. We're going to have peace. You want, you want a temple? Good. We're going to have, allow you to build a temple. And, and, and then, you know, the question then would be, then can we build it on the temple mount? Well, right now, I don't think any Arab would want any. If one nail went into building a temple on the Temple Mount while the Arabs still occupy it, World War III would start with one nail. You understand? Okay. So let's consider then some alternative here. Just, just, just to think what might be. And, and, you know, I, and I'll tell you, there, there's some people today that uh, are considering this. And it's a very credible people. I, I, I know uh, Chuck Missler. I, I, we've had Chuck here, and Chuck is one who's considering these things as well. I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not saying, you know, driving, you know, this whole thought process, but just saying there's a consideration because of the scriptures. You see, I've been doing a lot of talking tonight, uh, historically. So let's look at scripture now. All right, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7. Here we go. A lot of scripture in five minutes. Ah, let's see if we can do it. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, Zion, Zion. That's a, that's a link, underline Zion. The same the same is the city of David. Zion is in the city of David. All right? City of David. Go to Joel chapter 3 verse 17. Joel chapter 3. Joel is in the, in the minor prophets. Joel 3 verse 17. We're looking for links and connectors here. Verse 17 says, So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, Zion. My holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy. And there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. They will all know me. The Lord actually says someplace else. They'll all know me. Joel 2 verse 1. Go back a page. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Connectors, folks. That's all I'm telling you. Look at the connectors. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. 
Let's turn to Psalms. We've got a few in Psalms. And we can, we can cover this pretty quickly here. Psalm 30, I'm sorry, Psalm 132. Psalm 132, and I'm giving you a, a considerable passage here because there's some things that I want you to see that connect even more to what we're talking about as far as the temple is concerned. Psalm 132, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou, and the ark of thy strength. The ark of thy strength is, in fact, can be considered the ark of the covenant. The ark of thy strength. Notice verse 9 and the reference to priests. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness. So priesthood has something to do with temple worship. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness. And let thy saints shout for joy. For thy, servants, for thy servant David's sake turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. That is a direct reference to Messiah, who is of the seed and line of David. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Sion, Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Go all the way back to the beginning of Psalm and Psalms and Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, verse 6, where the Lord God... The Father says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Sion. That is, of course, speaking of Messiah. My holy hill of Zion. Psalm 102. So you, I'm, I know I'm making you flat, flip back and forth. There's some reason for my doing that. Psalm 102, verses 16 through 22. When the Lord shall build up Sion, Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come. And the people who, which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he has looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth. To hear the groaning of the prisoner. To loose those that are appointed to death. To declare the name of the Lord in Zion. Zion and his praise in Jerusalem in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord and then we'll close with a few verses here in Isaiah chronic first chronicles and, and one more in Psalms we're almost done Isaiah 2 verse 3 says and many people shall go and say come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord we're going to talk a little bit more about mountains next week. And we've talked a lot about mountains already in, in all of our studies of, of, of prophecy or, prophecy or prophetic books. We'll talk much more about it next time. And many people shall come and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Sion, Zion, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 24, verse 23. And then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Sion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. And then in Isaiah 66 verse 20, And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules 
and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And then 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. And this is dealing with Solomon building the temple. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place, notice this, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. That is a specific reference, specific reference to the boundary of the city of David. The same boundary of the Jebusite city that was taken by David when we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5. The city of David is directly south of the southern gate and the southern steps directly south. And what we're going to do next week is, is, is provide a link to that city of David because how many times do we hear the city of David and Zion mentioned? All right, just, just hold on before you start throwing tomatoes at me. So this last scripture re reference says rather conclusively that the temple will be built within the boundary of the city of David which happens to be the same boundary, as I said, of the Jebusite city taken by David. The links, the connectors are clear. Zion, my holy mountain, the city of David, my holy hill. The Lord dwells in Zion. And of course, there are, others, uh, there are other views. And we're going to look at some other views uh, as to how the Jewish people have their temple on the Temple Mount in preparation for the Antichrist to declare himself God. But as I said, considering the time frame that we're in, there is a lot of speculation in arriving there. And so I want to give some equal time to these other views because they're important views. And they're good views. I'm not saying that they're not. So next time, we're going to consider those other viewpoints. But until then, I want to leave you with, with one passage from Psalm 48. It's verses 8 through 14. Psalm 48. Now, when you read the whole psalm, and if, if you would, read the whole psalm tonight. Psalm 48 is a beautiful psalm. We used to, as a matter of fact, sing um, the first couple of verses uh, as a, as a, as a uh, chorus. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, uh, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Verse 8 says, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. And notice this, we have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion or Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well, take note very well of her bulwarks, her, her towers and her walls. Consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. So I, I just want to say that I'm thinking about these things. I would hope you would be thinking about them too. 
Not, not the controversy over where something's going to be because God knows where it's, exactly where it's going to be. And by the way, as we said, the millennial temple is going to be where Jesus puts it and he's going to change everything to put it there. But it's this temple, the tribulation temple, the temple that's going to be there before the tribulation or before the tribulation is over. That's the one that we have to consider. Where our thoughts are with God. And Mount Zion and the city of David. And it's considered Jerusalem. It's, it can be not considered that because it's, it's all within you know, walking distance, as it, as it were. Those of you that have been there know what I'm, what I'm saying. And I know some of you have been there. And I hope we get to go again. Uh, I, I don't know. I just keep thinking, you know, that maybe, you know, we, if we time it right, we can be there when the Lord comes. And maybe that'd be worth every cent we pay to get over there, right? <laughs> hey, the Lord's coming.